And once again, good morning. Good to see you all. Good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 6? And if you are new with us, again, we want to welcome you, let you know we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. For the last few weeks, we have been studying Jesus' famous Bread of Life discourse out of John 6. This was a teaching that resulted from a miracle he had performed the day before when he had taken just a small amount of food, five barley crackers or biscuits and two small pickled fish and multiplied them to feed a crowd of about 20,000 people. Now, what makes the Bread of Life discourse one of the greatest found in the New Testament is in its core message, which is eternal life. Jesus mentions that eight times in this discourse. Nothing is more important than eternal life. The Lord Jesus Christ knew that because he was the prince of life, the giver of life. And four times interspersed through this message, he stopped and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, paraphrase, listen carefully and don't miss what I am saying. Nothing is more important than eternal life. Now, so far in our outline, we have looked at the physical preoccupation of the multitude. They were just caught up in their physical needs. You only seek me, he said earlier, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Um, work not for that food that perishes, but for that food that leads to everlasting life. You know, trying to elevate their thinking from the mundane and physical to the spiritual. Uh, from that point, we got into our second main point in our outline, the divine declaration of the Savior, where Jesus maintains his divinity, presents his men, uh, divinity. And now we get into the third main point, the carnal condemnation of the Jewish leaders. Now, please understand that even though the Jewish leadership begins to challenge and condemn Jesus for declaring that he is the bread of life, well, that doesn't deter the Lord, as you could imagine. He continues to maintain and repeat what he has been saying about himself, that he is, in fact, God in human form, the Savior of the world, i.e., the bread of life, to use that metaphor. And so our second main point, as Jesus declares his divinity, uh, now we look at the third main point, and guys, they overlap. They overlap. In fact, they kind of overlap on top of each other. While they start condemning him for claiming to be divine, he keeps declaring he's divine, the Son of God, Savior of the world. You know, if the Lord Jesus Christ would have taught the way I teach, well, he probably wouldn't have gotten very far, though. But if he would have said, now, our first main point in our outline, it would have made it a lot easier for guys like me. Uh, but I, you know, yeah, but since he didn't teach that way, you know, I try to get in there, and pastors, we try to get in there and, and, and outline. So you have a work, kind of a working, easier to, to kind of, as somebody said, it's, outlines are, are, are points like, you know, like nails to, to hang your thoughts on, okay? Uh, but sometimes they kind of begin to overlap and things like that's happens what's going to be happening at this point. Just so you understand, verses 41 to 59 the Jewish leaders condemn Jesus' claims of divinity while he keeps on making them. Verse 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down 
from heaven. Now, as we have pointed out in previous studies in John's gospel, when John uses the term the Jews, he most always is referring to the Jewish leadership. Wherever Jesus went, especially as we're getting now towards the end of his public ministry, wherever Jesus went, there were always a few Jewish leaders in the crowd. At this point, no doubt, trying to find something in his words that they could use against him to condemn him in a Jewish court of law. At this point, they wanted his head. They did not want to hear anymore. They only listened to see if they could gain some information, something to use against him in a Jewish court of law to condemn him to death was the idea. But at this point, even though these guys were trying to keep low key, okay, uh, at this point, they couldn't contain themselves uh, when he said that he was the true bread. Listen, that came down from heaven. They just went ballistic and responded, uh, you know, incredulously. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Of course, this unsaved group of religious leaders, hypocrites really, we're only thinking carnally and not spiritually. That was a problem for them. Okay. And as such, they couldn't accept what Jesus was saying about himself. The reason Jesus' statement that he had come down from heaven disturbed these leaders so much was because they knew what he was saying. They knew he was declaring his own divinity. It wasn't that they couldn't comprehend the words. They just refused to come to terms with the reality of what he was saying. And that was the truth. They were unwilling to accept that he, his claims to be God in human form. Uh, they were not willing to accept the claims of Christ's divinity because, first of all, they thought they knew who he was and where he had come from. They believed he was the son of Joseph and Mary who came from Nazareth. Now, we know he was born of Mary, but after the Holy Spirit, uh, but after being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of course, when he was born, he had an adoptive father. Uh, Joseph was his legal adoptive father, but his true father, of course, was God the Father. And while it was true that Jesus had grown up in Nazareth, because that's where Joseph and Mary were from, he was actually born in Bethlehem, as we know, according to what the prophet Micah prophesied in chapter 5, verse 2, that he would be born in uh, the town of Bethlehem in the county of Ephrathah. That, of course, should have been uh, a major um, point uh, proving his messiahship. And of course, Matthew, he gives like 17 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Matthew, all the way through his gospel, says he did this or he said that, that it might be, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying. I mean, Jesus fulfilled 333 prophecies at his first coming of the Old Testament. The second reason they refused to believe that Jesus was God in human form and the Messiah of Israel was because, listen, he didn't fit into their preconceived ideas of who Messiah would be. They believed Messiah was going to be a man like Moses. Why did they believe that? Because in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said that there's, God was going to send another, uh, uh, another prophet like unto me. And he would speak words of truth to you. Well, they said, well, Moses was a man, so this Messiah, because they believed that was talking about Messiah, this Messiah 
would be a man like Moses. But what Moses was keying in on, not on his humanity, but on his ministry, that Moses was a deliverer. He was used by God to deliver God's people out of the bondage of Egypt. This new prophet, the Messiah, would also be a deliverer. didn't say he was going to be a mere man. He was fully man, but also fully God. But the emphasis was on deliverer because this Messiah would deliver not only God's people, but the whole world from the bondage of sin and death. But secondly, they rejected him as Messiah because he didn't do what they believed Messiah was going to do when he finally came. See, they believed and were taught all their lives that when Messiah showed up, he would lead them in a revolt against Rome, overthrow the Roman government, and establish the kingdom. But here, Jesus has been teaching them to love their enemies, right? Pray for those people who despitefully use you and so on. Well, that's not the talk of a revolutionary, you know? We're looking for a, a, a commanding officer. We're looking for a general. You know, he's got a wartime general going to lead us into a battle against Rome, our enemies. Overthrow them. We can establish the kingdom. I mean, you know, loving your enemies, that's, this guy can't be the Messiah, the true Messiah wouldn't tell us to love our enemies. He'd say, let's go fight our enemies, kind of a thing, right? So in verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this point, Jesus begins to separate the true from the false. We'll see this in our last main point, which we'll get to next week, but... Um, Right now, he begins to lay the groundwork uh, because at this point, it's either fish or cut bait kind of a thing, all right? No more sitting on the fence. Either you're for me or you're against me was the kind of idea, all right? And so now he begins to say things that were, and you're going to see that very clearly in a second, he began to say things that were, wow, I mean, so controversial, so scandalous that only those with the right heart, being led by the Holy Spirit, would understand what he would. The rest would be chased away. And that's what he wanted. He didn't want groupies. He wanted true disciples, okay? So uh, at this point, he begins to separate the truth from the false. In other words, those who only heard with their ears, but didn't listen with their hearts. Why? Because their hearts were hardened through pride, willful unbelief, and therefore they couldn't comprehend Divide those from those who heard his words with an open heart. And by the power of the Holy Spirit understood what he was saying and responded to his message. You know, guys, Jesus indicted the Jewish leaders of his day for being the fulfillment of the prophecy that was outlined in Isaiah, which Jesus quoted in Matthew 13. You have to turn there. I'll read verses 14 and 15 to, uh, to you, where he said, These leaders are the fulfillment of the words of the prophet Isaiah, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. I should heal them. Save them is the idea. Now, listen, 
I need to just point out briefly uh, that uh, John 6, 44, verse 44. Um, I just want to say this in passing. I'm not, we spent a couple, uh, a couple weeks ago, we spent uh, the whole message on dealing with Calvinism, some of the things Calvinists believe. But I bring it out t- today because in verse 44, that verse is a favorite among Calvinists, which, uh, which like, they like to quote it to approve the I in their acronym TULIP. I stands for irresistible grace. When Jesus said that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, Calvinists interpret the word draws as drags. Drags. In other words, no one can come to me unless the Father drags them, or in other words, forces them to come to Christ through irresistible grace. However, Dr. Leighton Flowers, once himself a committed Calvinist, said the Greek word translated draws could also be translated enables. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me enables them, and those who come I will raise up at the last day. What's the bottom line? And again, we went through this in detail a couple weeks ago. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is the Father, through the Holy Spirit, invites, enables, and draws all the people of the world to His Son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. That's what I believe. I don't believe He only draws a small, select group called the elect. And the rest have no chance of ever being saved. I don't believe that's our God who desires for all men and women to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And I believe the Father and the Spirit and the Son are drawing all people to Jesus for salvation. Jesus said in John 12, 32, If I be lifted up from the earth, speaking of the cross, I will draw all people to myself. Now, it doesn't mean... All people will get saved. All people could. Because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, is the propitiation for all the sins of the world. But only those who come and receive will be saved. I believe that the Father is calling all. But only those who respond, He chooses as His children. Remember we talked about Matthew 22, verse 14. Many are called but few are chosen. Everyone's called. But only those who respond and receive Christ, well, the Father knew that in eternity past and tells us in the, in the scriptures that he knew us in eternity past um, through his foreknowledge, Peter tells us, and he, based on his foreknowledge, predestined those who would receive Christ to be his sons and daughters. You can get the CD or you can go online. But again, guys, no one is dragged into the kingdom. No one is dragged into salvation against their will. And no one is excluded from salvation who wants to be saved. John 6.37, I think, made that pretty clear. The choice is and always has been yours and yours alone to make. What you do with Christ is up to you. I mean, it's up to you. You don't have to... God's drawing. God's inviting God's, you know, enabling people to believe. And it's not that they don't understand the gospel. They understand it only too well, many times, unbelievers. It's that they reject the implications of the gospel, the number one being, when you come to Christ, you are stepping down off the throne of your life and having him step 
on to the throne. He becomes your king. He becomes your your uh, your uh, maker. You're not your maker. He's your maker. Becomes your king. He becomes your lord. But that's an act of your own free will. We have a choice. God doesn't force anyone to come. You'll never find in the scriptures, get saved. Get into Christ. Only invitations. Come. Come. All you who are weary and have come. I'll give you eternal life. It's a gift. You can accept it. You can reject it. Verse 44 again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God therefore everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me now again I just to close out my thoughts here Jesus in verse 45 isn't saying that only a small group of very of select individuals called the elect are taught by the father what that means is given the supernatural ability to understand his truth and believe uh, some say, well, that's the only way a person can come to Christ is if the Father enlightens them. The Father zaps them with, with faith to believe. Because we're dead in trespasses and sins, Calvinists believe. Uh, dead people can't exercise faith. Uh, that's true. Dead people can't sin either. So uh, that kind of falls apart. But uh, the, th the idea is that, okay, uh, so, you know, I, I have no problem believing. That, that the Father, only those that are drawn by the Father can be saved. The issue I have is, I believe all are drawn by the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, whereas some groups like Calvinists believe only the elect are drawn, and the rest have no, choice, have no chance of ever being saved. I believe that, and what Jesus is saying here is that the Father is drawing, and of course, that implies He's enlightening, He's enabling. He is um, giving his truth, and, and people then, uh, if they have an open heart uh, and they want to know the truth, he, he, he draws them even further. Look, God gives light to all of us. If we are faithful to the light of the truth he's given us, he'll give us more truth. And finally, enough truth to be saved. If God gives you a little truth as an unbeliever and you slap his hand away, he says, I don't want your truth. Why would he waste more truth on you? And this is what Jesus is essentially saying in my mind. He's talking to a group of people. Some of them have open hearts. Some of them are hard-hearted. He knows that some are going to receive his message and the others are going to reject it because of pride and willful unbelief and, and, uh, and uh, the, the, the religious leaders because of envy. So he basically is saying, look, I've been sent here by the Father to give you his truth. He's drawing you to me. Now we'll see if your heart is open or it's hard. If you receive this truth, then you're going to become one of mine. If you reject it, that's your own doing. Because I want you saved. I want you to come. Verse 46, not everyone, who's, not everyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, talking about himself there, of course. The Jewish leadership had mistakenly identified Joseph as the father of Jesus and made it the basis for their unbelief. 
How so? Because they reasoned God couldn't be his father since we all know that Joseph is his father. But you see, Jesus constantly maintained that God was his father. Remember in chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And the Greek comes across this way, that he constantly made himself equal with God because he constantly declared his divinity as God. John opened his gospel, in the beginning was the word, a title for Jesus Christ. And the word was with God. The Greek, words, the Greek means eye to eye with, on the, on the same level with, equal to. How could somebody be equal to God who is not God? That's what John goes on to say, and the word was God. But these guys didn't believe. The more he maintained his divinity, his equality with the Father, the more they hated him. Their hearts were so hard, they were so furious with him, because he wasn't what they thought the Messiah should be, and he didn't honor them. Like all the other people in Israel honored these so-called religious godly men, quote-unquote. There was celebrity pastors back then as there is today. But Jesus continually made himself equal, equal with God. That was the hallmark of his ministry. We saw it in John 5.18, and now he reinforces it right here in John 6.46. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he, Jesus, which is of God, he hath seen the Father. It reminds us of something John said about Jesus to open his gospel. He said in chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. In all of his fullness is the idea. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Jesus Christ saw the Father face to face in eternity past, of course, because he's part of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then he came down to the earth, born of the Virgin Mary, grew up and is now declaring to them back then and us today what God is really like. We'll talk more about that when we get a little farther. But the Jews again had mistakenly identified the son, excuse me, Jesus as the son of the man, Joseph. The scriptures are very clear, and Jesus testified constantly that he was and is God's only begotten son, who existed in eternity past with the Father and, of course, the Spirit, before having ever been placed into the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, where he was then conceived, and eventually, nine months later, was born in, onto this earth as a flesh and blood human being. All right, verse 47. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me is everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that you may eat of it and not die. Well, he's not talking about not dying physically. He's talking about not dying spiritually. There are uh, two deaths that uh, an unbeliever experiences. One is physical death. If they're an unbeliever, then they experience a second death, which the Bible calls the second death, which is eternity in the lake of fire or hell. Jesus is saying, look, if you... If you eat the, my flesh, you know, and you come to me and eat the bread of life, which I am, he said, you, you, you will not die 
It's not talking about never die physically. Of course, if God's people are alive at the rapture, then none of us will, if we're alive when the rapture takes place, which is, gets my vote, we're never going to taste death physically at all. Okay? But uh, if the rapture is uh, delayed for some reason, or not yet, uh, we may die physically, but uh, we'll never die spiritually. We'll never die eternally in the lake of fire. He goes on to say in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. He will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Now, this is basically, guys, a recap of what he has already said earlier in this chapter. We've studied it, so we're not going to redo it. Why does he repeat himself? Because they're not getting it, and the best way to teach somebody is through repetition, right? But let it never be said, God didn't make it clear to me. If a person dies and goes to hell, they got to work very hard to do that. Because God's always sending them, you know, worker, co-workers with the little tracks, right? You know, you go out to your car, there's a track in your windshield wiper. Or uh, somebody you work with is always witnessing to you. Or a family member. If a person dies and goes to hell, they've worked very hard to go to hell over the course of their life. Because God didn't want it. And he kept sending people to tell them the truth, right? But this is something Jesus already had declared. And, um, but this last statement <laughs> by Jesus really sent his critics over the edge. Okay, They're listening, probably taking little notes. Oh, we can probably use that against them. Oh, that's a good one. But when he said, I am the true bread which came down from heaven, they just couldn't contain themselves. And, they, and, and, uh, and when he said, uh, uh, and Jesus, when he said, the, the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, of course, he was speaking spiritually. But they, being carnal, unsaved men, thought he was speaking literally. He's talking about bread, right? They have on their minds the bread that came down from heaven for 40 years in the days of Moses. That was literal bread. People ate that bread. And now he dovetails and talks about himself as the bread that came down from heaven. Of course, again, bread is eaten. But then in verse 51, he throws them a big curveball, curve and the bread uh, is my flesh. And because he said that, they assumed he was talking about cannibalism. Cannibalism. Which caused them to respond with horror and disgust. Verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? If that wasn't enough to, dis to drive these guys to distraction, okay? Uh, and I'm sure his disciples too, by the way, because they're not spirit-filled guys at this point either. A lot of things Jesus said they didn't quite get, all right? And here I'm thinking, they're sitting there thinking, oh boy, he's backed himself into a corner here. Eat my flesh. Lord, you better clarify. Come on now. Don't, don't leave us, you know, hanging here. Because you, you gave him the wrong impression. But Jesus doesn't, he just doubles down. He, he, you didn't misunderstand me. Maybe let, let me make it even clearer. Verse 53, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history to unravel these things, right? How would you have felt? What would you have thought if you were hearing this back then for the first time? Oh, my goodness. He's gone crazy. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. Hitched my start of the wrong wagon here, man. I, I knew it, okay? Look, these are heavy words. Heavy words that have generated a lot of controversy over the years as to what the Lord Jesus Christ is really talking about. Let me just say this. Before we talk about what Jesus is saying here, let's first look at what he's not saying. When you're studying the Bible, you come across a controversial passage. Sometimes it helps to figure out what he can't be saying or what the passage is not saying before you then look at what it is saying. Okay? Let me tell you what he's not saying. Next week we'll look at what he is saying. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying what the Roman Catholic Church teaches he is saying. Now let me just say this. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not one of those rabid anti-Catholic Protestants. Okay? I, I, went to Cath I, I grew up in the Catholic Church, went to Catholic elementary school. My wife went to Catholic high school. We got married in the Catholic Church. I had no problems with the Catholic Church. I loved the Catholic Church. Until I started reading the Bible. And the truth will set you free. Okay? Roman Catholics take literally the words of Jesus here in John 6 and also his words in Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28, when he said in the upper room the night before the cross, as he instituted communion, taking the bread into his hands, he said, this is my body. And then taking the cup of wine, he said, this is my blood. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that during the Mass, they take that literally, and they believe and teach that during the Mass, the elements, the bread and wine, are miraculously transformed into the substance of Christ's body and blood, literally, so that they are no longer bread and wine, even though they still appear to be. The process, this process is referred to as transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, it literally means a change of substance, where bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. And then after the bread and wine are converted into the actual body and blood of Christ, at each celebration of the Mass, they are then offered to God as a new sacrifice of Christ. This means in Roman Catholic theology, the priest literally handles Christ's body and that the Mass is, listen, a constant reenactment of Christ's sacrifice. Now, they will deny this. Uh, Roman Catholics, if they understand this at all, they'll deny this, that they're not re-sacrificing Christ in every Mass, in every church, every week. It's interesting, in the book of Revelation, Chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters of the seven churches. Literal churches in Asia Minor in the days of John. But also are symbolic of different churches even today. And if you study those letters, you will see that Thyatira fits most accurately as the Roman Catholic Church. And it's interesting, the word Thyatira means continual sacrifice. 
continual sacrifice. Now the Catholics deny that they are re-sacrificing Christ every Mass. They say it's simply a bloodless representation. It's just a bloodless representation. But see, they teach it's efficacious. So it's not just a representation. Like we would, you know, uh, you know, do a little skit, like at Christmas time, of the nativity. Okay? Uh, that's not, they believe it's efficacious. Hold on to that. We'll come back to it in a second. After these elements, bread and wine have been transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ. The, uh, the uh, host, the Eucharist, is then placed on display in a little standing chamber vessel holder called a monstrance. You can go online and Google monstrance. And you know, they're usually just a, st a standing thing uh, with a kind of a sunburst made out of gold and a little window, circular window, the, the, uh, the wafer, the Eucharist, is dropped inside and now it's put on display. And it's put on display because it is Jesus Christ and the, the, the faithful come and worship it now. In Roman Catholic theology, the Eucharist, which comes from a word that means thanksgiving, also called Holy Communion, is again efficacious. What does that mean? It means it has the power to produce a desired effect. That's what efficacious means. It has the power to produce a desired effect. In, in the case of the Catholic Mass, it has the power to earn installments of grace. Now that's interesting because grace in the Bible is defined as a gift. Catholic Church defines grace as works. Okay? And so as the faithful come to church partake of the Eucharist, have Holy Communion, and then keep the other sacraments. Well, as they do this over the course of their life, all of these installments of grace, from going to church and lighting candles and praying the rosary and keeping the other sacraments, all of those things are earning you little installments of grace that accrue over the course of your life and eventually, hopefully, wind up uh, equaling the amount of good works and things you have to have to purchase your salvation. Now, if you die and you haven't quite reached the goal, it wouldn't be nice if God told Catholics what the goal was. If God said you got to do 2,000 good works in the course of your life to go to heaven, I'm sure they'd be keeping count, right? And, and it's like, you know, you'd work very hard to get to that 2,000 mark. But of course, they don't know. Nobody does. So therefore, in Roman Catholic theology, no Catholic can say they have eternal life. Not even the Pope, by the way. Catholic theology says if anybody, any Catholic claims they have eternal life, including the Pope, they are to be anathematized, cursed to the lowest hell. Because you don't know how many good works you have, how many you need. you got to keep working. Now, you may die and you're uh, 5,000 short. I don't know. You have to go into purgatory for a couple thousand years, work that off, which is not biblical. I'm just saying what the Catholic Church believes. And again, I love Roman Catholics. I love Roman I got many Roman Catholics in my family. I despise the Roman Catholic Church. Let me just go on record. I'm not, I don't believe they're a good church that's a little off. I believe they are a bad church on the, on the level of a cult who is very off, even though there's some wonderful people in the Catholic Church with sincere hearts. And as a shepherd, I want to lead them out of the wolf's den into the truth. But again, the Catholic Mass has the power 
to help these folks earn installments of grace which accrue someday will be sufficient for the purchasing of salvation for the faithful catholic who remains listen in good standing with the church what does that mean google it how does the catholic remain in good standing in the church i don't have time to get into it but in roman catholicism guys salvation becomes sacramental which means participation in a ritual as opposed to what the bible actually says about salvation that it's a free gift we received through our faith in Jesus Christ by receiving him as our Lord and our Savior. It's through our faith in Christ alone that allows us to uh, receive as a gift eternal life, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. When Catholics partake of the Eucharist, they believe they are literally consuming the body of Jesus and that by ingesting the Eucharist, in other words, by eating the body of Christ, they believe that this brings them everlasting life. To justify this belief, they point to this very section we're in, in John's Gospel, chapter 6, the words of Christ himself, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the, for the life of the world is my flesh. So they take this literally and say, well, there you go. Jesus, out of his own mouth, said that we have to eat his flesh to have eternal life. And, of course, through the Catholic Mass, through transubstantiation, the wafer and wine are turned into the literal body and blood of Christ, which are then ingested. That's how they have eternal life. Well, let me just point to you verse 63. As the Catholics are referring to Jesus' physical body, here's what Jesus himself said in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh Prophets, nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. I'm speaking spiritually, not literally. Now, of course, we evangelicals believe the Lord's Supper is a very a sacred thing, a spiritual experience, but we don't believe that the bread and wine are transubstantiated into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, as Roman Catholics believe. And furthermore, we don't believe that Christ needs to be sacrificed in every uh, church, through every Mass, every week, a con constant sacrificing of Christ. Why don't we believe that? Because the Bible says it very clearly. I'll just read these to you. You can write them down. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 10. We have been sanctified, saved, justified, through the offering of the, of the body of Jesus Christ, listen, once for all time and all people. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many for the whole world. And of course, we all know John 19, verse 30. While on the cross, at one point, Jesus said, it is what? Finished. The Bible is clear. And of course, all of those go against the Catholic teaching that during the Mass, Jesus Christ is re-sacrificed every Mass, every week, and so on. The plain meaning of the words, this is my, oh, goodness, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift it into high. Um, the plain meaning of the words, uh, I'm thinking of the night before the cross uh, in the upper room where Jesus instituted communion and said, you know, holding the bread, this is my body. Then taking the, the cup of the wine and said, this is my blood. I believe the, 
the paraphrase, the correct paraphrase is, this bread represents my body and this wine represents my shed blood. Now, there are many good reasons why that interpretation, I believe, is the correct one. Let me just give them to you quickly, some of them. First of all, the disciples, to whom Jesus was instituting communion in the upper room that night, uh, you know, he gave them the bread and wine. They were, they were Jews. And the Jews had been taught that it was sinful to eat flesh with the blood. Deuteronomy 12, verses 23 to 25. If they had taken Christ's words literally, they would have been startled, more probably shocked by his words. And there's nothing in the narrative that suggests they were shocked at his words. So I believe, they believe he was speaking figuratively. I mean, if they had believed he was talking literally, oh, I think they would have hit the floor, okay? But because they didn't react that way, um, I believe they understood Jesus' words to be figurative. Secondly, the doctrine of the Incarnation teaches that the Son of God took on himself a true human body. He wasn't just a vision or a spirit. He had a true flesh and blood body. He was truly a man. Fully God, fully man, but he was a man. And it's the nature, guys, of physical bodies, listen, that they cannot be in more than one place or exist in, in more than one form at a time. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he was before his disciples in, true, in a true physical body. And uh, if he was present with them bodily, he couldn't also be present with them in the wafer and the wine, also physically. Besides, Jesus said, you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He had the second coming in view. Now, if the Catholic Mass was true, he would have said, now hang in there. Every time you have Mass, I'm going to be there. I'm going to come to you, okay? You're going you're to cause the wafer and the wine to, to, be, to be turned into me. Of course, you didn't say that. Thirdly, the statement, this is my body, is no different from any other metaphorical statement which is sprinkled throughout the Bible. The Bible is full of these. I'll give you a flavor of these. Genesis 41, verse 26, the seven good cows are seven years. Okay? Daniel 2, verse 38, Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream said, you are the head of gold. Matthew 13, 38, the field is the world. Paul said the rock that followed the children of Israel around in the wilderness, that rock, he said, was Christ, not literally, figuratively. Revelation 1, verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and on and on it goes. Jesus, I am the door, I am the true vine. It goes on and on. All the, so this is not uh, unique language. And again, when Roman Catholics contend that Jesus was speaking literally here about literally drinking his blood, eating his body, please again take him to John 6.63, where he said, look, I'm not speaking uh, uh, physically or literally. Uh, the flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spiritual, but they are communicating life. All right. This proves, in my mind, Jesus wasn't speaking literally, but metaphorically. Now, I think that most evangelical Christians, as I do, probably hold to the belief that communion is a beautiful remembrance, right? It's a beautiful remembrance of the love of Christ for us and laying down his physical life so that we might have spiritual life, eternal life. 
And we as evangelicals don't focus on the words, this is my body, as Roman Catholics do. I think we tend to focus on the words out of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24, do this in remembrance of me. We see the bread and wine as merely symbols to be used to remind us, a memorial, if you will, of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Let me just say in closing, I was raised, as I said, in the Catholic Church and um, went to Catholic elementary school. And in second grade, um, I, uh, I, uh, uh, we were uh, taught and eventually uh, uh, went forward to, to uh, uh, you know, have our second, excuse me, our First Holy Communion. Remember, if you're a Catholic, you went to Catholic elementary school, as I did, you know, at one point, uh, that you, you made your first Holy Communion. And that meant from that time on, you were able to then come to Mass and take communion, the wafer, right? Which I did every time I went to church growing up. I got the wafer and booked for the door. I mean, that's all, that's all I need, right? That's that wafer. That's where all the stuff happens. You got to have that. So I, I get the, the communion host and I leave, all right? Um, but listen, I, have took, I took communion, uh, you know, uh, if it wasn't every week, every month, growing up, um, and yet I was seven then when I first did my first Holy Communion. I didn't get saved until I was 25, 18 years later. All those partaking of the Eucharist did nothing for me spiritually because no ceremony, no um, wafer, ordinance, sacrament, religious work, none, none of that can give you eternal life. When I accepted Christ into my heart as my Lord and Savior, a transformation took place. I became a new creation, a child of God. I went from religion to a relationship. When I had religion, I did things out of duty. I had to go to church. I had to do this. I had to do this sacrament and so on. As now a born-again believer in Christ, I didn't have to go to church. I got to go to church. I didn't have to read the Bible. I got to read the Bible. I didn't have to hang out with other Christians. I got to hang out with the body of Christ. It's a whole different relationship. Jesus was talking to guys who were religious. But they didn't know him in their hearts. They weren't born again. This is the thing. And this is what Jesus is coming against, right? He wants us to understand that, look, there is religion which is outward, and then there's eternal life which is inward, and that only comes by receiving Christ. To step into your life, to get you to step off the throne of your heart so that he can step onto that throne and live as your king and your Lord. Well, next time, guys, we're going to look at what Jesus really meant when he said that to have eternal life we had to eat Yikes, his flesh and drink his blood. It's a little barbaric, but uh, we'll see what he actually was saying, God willing, next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you especially and most importantly for our Savior. Father, thank you for sending Jesus down to this earth. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you willingly came down. Nobody forced you. And Lord, we thank you that you loved us so much that you went to the cross and died for our sins. And now what you're saying is, if we will invite you into our hearts, believe in you, 
You will come inside through your Holy Spirit and you will recreate us from the inside out. And we will know you. We will know God in a way we never, ever knew you, Lord, through religion. Because we will have a living, vibrant relationship with you through the Holy Spirit. So we thank you, Lord. We ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.